Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. Today we are podcasting from the BSA and we are joined by the wonderful Erin Winter. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, so Erin has been generous enough to support us here at the BSA and also, very excitingly, researchers the far right. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you've been up to? Also, just plan to chip in, it's exciting because if you listen to the podcast you know that TSO is Obsessed with the far right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. The reason why it's obsession is because I just think personally, when I'm from growing up, they've always been had a presence where I've been growing up. And to see them change and become international and develop like kind of theoretical frameworks to kind of justify what they're doing, that's interesting to me because before when I first started looking at the people like the BNP, they were very much in the mould of the NF kind of fucks, yeah, street fucks. And then as things developed, and then, like they become, like try to develop a kind of idea of kind of internationalization, using the internet, and all these things to change how they are, and so how they are now, they're so very sophisticated and almost convincing. Like, if you listen to them through a certain lens, so to certain people it makes sense. So, yeah. No, that's really interesting. I, I mean, I, I guess it's, it's, I grew up, and this, this is part of my sort of coming to this topic, but I kind of grew up under the specter of sort of Nazism, due to my family's own experience. Um, when I was a teenager, there was a huge skinhead revival in Toronto, and I was part of sort of a two-tone movement. So I had always associated this, but at the same time in Canada, you learn about these horrible things that were going on in the United States, because I'm Canadian, uh, in the United States with Jim Crow, Japanese internment, all these sort of what were effectively state racisms and mainstream racisms, but they were such extreme, what we, me and Aurelia and Mondon in our own work now call sort of illiberal racisms, that in somehow these extreme forms were always seen to be a distraction yes. from what, what sort of racialized people would experience day to day in terms of sort of their day to day experiences, but also the workplace, structural racism, et cetera. And a part of what informs my work now is looking at the far right not as, in fact, as a, opposing those who see it as the site of racism, the site, and this is what we call illiberal racism, and the ways in which that distracts, conceals from mainstream racism. So, I guess in terms of that, my, my I guess my big project is the relationship between the far right and the and the mainstream. And and, and I think that's the point I was trying to kind of I, I kind of got to and tried to, especially with this most recently in Christchurch. And I'm trying to say to people, there's a continuity between that and what the mainstream. So that's the idea. There's a link between the far right and the mainstream, but that's never played up in the media when they talk about stuff. No, no. And in fact, in sociology, when I was sort of coming up, the idea was if you focus on the far right, you are distracting from the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And by mainstream, I don't. I, I want to just clarify that I don't. I don't mean the mainstream like in an abstract way, but I mean in the structures of racism. Mm -hmm. And so in the institutions which yeah. perpetuate racism, but also the mainstream movements and parties that in or that, that, that they actually make they use the far right's extremism to make their own racist policies acceptable and legitimate. Um, and this is this is what I mean by this. So what I mean by the far right and the mainstream, in some ways that there is a constructed separation. There's a historic, we're ignoring historical conjunctures like is occur, are occurring right now, and I totally agree with that, that part. But also the way in which the mainstream and the political parties 
are either believe or led to believe that public opinion holds that they need to take a stand against immigration, Islam, um, and a whole bunch of other things in order to prevent some far-right revolution. And a part of what I maintain in my work is we're not going to have that far-right revolution because the mainstream is going to do the business for it. And that's part of what we're talking about in the mainstreaming right now. Um, so it makes me think of Theresa May's response to the Finsbury Park attack, which she said, we have to fight extremism on all sides. Mm -hmm. So she created an equivalence with sort of called Islamism. And then she says, like we and she says, Islamophobia is a form of extremism. And we have to fight that as if she's not the go home van, hostile environment, prevent mm -hmm. PM. Secretary, um, and then she said we have to fight Islamophobia as extremism, like we fought racism, as if racism is not also Islamophobia, and we have been successful with that. So in a way that there's this constant displacement that is functional to allow the mainstream to have its racism, and then, then they displace it to, oh well, the, the people want it, mm -hmm. or the, the constructed working class. Ordinary people want it. Yeah, yeah. You've got to think about ordinary yeah. yeah. What's really interesting about what you're saying, Aaron, is as we're sat here this week, we've got Nigel Farage's Brexit party sort of coming to form and seeing the people that are sort of aligning themselves yeah. with him because they've got legitimate concerns about immigration. Yeah. And it's so mental that that has now, as you say, like it's now mainstream, like all those sort of that anti-immigrant anti state racism, it's all sort of plays into the same narrative now like it feels do you feel like this moment is maybe creating something even more ex extreme and the, the crossovers even more pronounced or absolutely in fact so some of my my work has been historical so i've looked at the mapping of the far right so i look at the, the way in which say following obama's election the clan gets represented as this remnant of racism that was defeated now the way the clan was defeated was the same way Fred Hampton was killed, and Quintelpro destroyed the, new, destroyed the New Left and the Black Panthers. It was against subversives who were disrupting the status quo, as opposed to being anti-racist. Um, and so the Klan then becomes this remnant of racism who can go on like normal. But we had this post-race fantasy that then creates two things. One, people go, well, if everything's all right, then why are they complaining so much? Um, but I think the biggest danger right now we have, so we have that reverse racism, white victimization narrative, and white male victimization, which feeds into the online culture, but you also have a period where you don't have a major party who's saying, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna deport people. Yeah, you don't have anyone. I mean, I've had this conversation so many times, people go, well, are you saying we can't have a legitimate conversation about the problems of, you know, immigrants or refugees? I mean, yeah, that's, I'm saying that. Yeah, not having a legitimate just... conversation. Because it's not a legitimate conversation. It's complete nonsense. It's completely amplified, constructive nonsense that is not going to solve a single, these are not people who are responsible for any of the problems, and it's not gonna solve any problems. It's just, it's a distraction that harms people's lives, families, well-beings, et cetera. So I won't have that conversation. What, what's really interesting, I think, as well, is we mentioned this, me and Saskia interviewed Gargi a couple mm -hmm. of weeks ago, and you mentioned the sort of whiteness, mm -hmm. um, sort of, yeah. And she's sort of saying, what I feel like is, she said, I've suffered racism my whole life, we've seen this race, racism my whole, state racism my whole life. But what is interesting about this moment, and what's quite scary about this moment, is whiteness is not being used in the sense of rationality, it's being used in the sense of race, like the white race, under yeah. the threat, whereas before it's been very linked to 
the nation. Obviously, we do have that now, mm-hmm. but it's sort of like this. It's like an international white movement. Yeah. So that's what's really weird about it. Yeah. What, what, what I find interesting that this construction of whiteness now has sorted. It's, it's kind of like an umbrella term. They bring in things like Christendom, Christianity, all these things to kind of, I don't know, to give it more form, more, more kind of make it more robust. So even like they, they like even the most kind of like, if you have to be really into history, like quite like Charles Martel, people that we've never heard of, but they, they bring them forward like the Ottoman Empire and bring things like that to the fore when, sorry, a good example is like, Bin Laden used to do that when he used to give speeches and he used to re- reference like 1918. And then, unless you're really into that stuff, you would never understand. Intellectualizing. Yeah. I think though that like that's always been there to a certain extent. Like you know, like um, was it in 2006 Turkey trying to be part of the EU? Yeah. And you know, a lot of the rhetoric around that was like, we don't want Muslims in Europe because Europe is like a Christian. You know, like all that stuff about like in 1492, like the last Moorish kingdom was kicked out of Europe and all that kind of stuff. And like that has resonances in 2006. So it's not that these things are suddenly come into existence, it's that somehow those uh, currents in opinion or in like the way people talk about society seem a lot louder mm-hmm. or maybe a lot more explicit. Yeah. Or mainstream. I mean, well, yeah, yeah. that is mainstream, right? Yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. like you don't get much more mainstream than like politicians being like, we don't want Turkey in the EU. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. But there was, so, there was a period of time in Europe post-war, in America post-civil rights, in South Africa, where, I don't know, it's just an example of the lifetimes and places, but, but there was this idea that, um, you know, there was a separation between the mainstream and the far right. And I think what's very dangerous now is you have a conversion now. So in some cases you have a, a liberalization and a, sort of a, a, let's call it racial progress, which is what the liberal term is. And then you have a far right that basically says things have gone too far. Now you have a far right that's saying it and a mainstream that's saying it. And I do think it's also predicated on this this post-race delusion which told everyone we're all equal now, whereas nothing structural institutional changed and it it feeds it it feeds a white victimization narrative. Now, um, in terms of the whiteness thing, you have the white victimization narrative on the far right and the extreme right. In the mainstream, you still have a European universalization, rationality, uh, sort of what, what we call the realism relativism debates mm-hmm. of, the, of the intellectual dark web and them. But they're starting to sort of expose themselves by saying, yeah, well, like, you know, masculinity is universal, <laughs> you know, whiteness is universal. But I think. Sorry, could you just go back? Yeah, sorry, sorry, Realism yeah. and relativism, could you just give us a quick. Well, so I was, sorry, that was more like inside kind of. When I first arrived, uh, like in this country, when I was, as an academic, there was this whole debate whether the postmodernists and the identity, the identity theorists, were going to destroy Western civilization, the modernist project, et cetera. I mean, it's this silly, sort of attributing so much to social, social theory. Um, <laughs> and this is prior to the impact agenda. Um, that the idea is if we talk about particular groups, we're breaking apart that sort of what makes us all human, these universals onto them. And really what it was, it was a maintenance of the sort of the white male European canon. And that's emerged again with Jordan Peterson and all those figures. And so then they used to, they still have that. But they're, they, and the far right does this like white genocide thing. And in between there, there's this idea of like whiteness as particular. 
So it's no longer universal, which means, and this is parallel to the loss of privilege, if whiteness is no longer universal, and whiteness no longer um, has privilege, then we've lost everything. And so that's where that can feed a, a, ch a channel to the white victimization, white genocide narrative. And I think you're seeing this on social media, which yeah. is also part and parcel of that transnationalization or internationalization. But telling people, it's like, it, it's because you're working class, it's because you're this, it's because you're that. You're a beta male and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. The feminization of, yeah. And if you're allowed to hang on to your sort of like your, your enlightenment narratives, you'll be okay. So Jordan Peterson, you know, 12 rules. I think, you, I think you kind of summed up, well that's how it's, that kind of loss, that loss of privilege, mm -hmm. and it's, that sense of loss is so powerful. What I didn't expect when I started looking into the fire was, not, I expected to find the race stuff, but I didn't expect to find the kind of dislike of women, like misogyny. That shocked me because that's so, that's so that, that narrative is very strong mm -hmm. in there. So one of the things that me and Aurelian Montan did in our, our sort of, uh, ethnic racial studies article on articulation of Islamophobia, we looked at the way in which in order to articulate itself, the, um, articula the mainstream articulating its, its racism, that in a way that wasn't tainted by the legacies of the far right and fascism, they would do this liberal narrative about, well, we're fighting for women's rights. Well, I mean, and there's a big thing, so like homo nationalism as well, where governments will say like, oh, we need to uh, get rid of Muslims because otherwise, you know, because they don't like gay people. Yeah. And so we can't protect gay rights. We can't protect women if we yeah. allow Muslims free reign. You know, they, you don't know what they're going to do. And you're like, thanks for using gay liberation. This is what blows my mind about stuff. Like, do they think we're dickheads? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's actually like, it's so, the hypocrisy is like, unbelievable. It's, it, it honestly, it does blow my mind, like. It also feels like politics by committee, but like, this will convince them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like they've got together, like, what should we say but, now? So, like, Puar's work and, and Sarah Ferris's work really have influenced us. But what's interesting about the side, and we, we tend not to use the term feminationalism and homonationalism because we don't want to attribute it even an inkling to the groups or targets who are being weaponized involved. And we also don't, we don't tend to use the word nationalism, we use racism. So, and that's not that, and that's not what Puar or Ferris euphemizing or anything like that, but. Um, well, do you think it's possible to have a nationalism that is not racist? Uh, no, <laughs> but I want it called racism. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that, I guess that's that's the thing, and, 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 and so yeah. I I tend not to use the word populism. I use the word racism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah, yeah, so, populism implies somehow that yeah. it's legitimate, popular. Yeah. Like people want, like which is how it's being. It's like sold. the public will. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So so you've got all that sort of what we call liberal racism, which is the I I don't call it LGBTQ plus rights. It's LG rights in the in the in the in the hands and minds of the far right. Or and the state, because you see how quickly the transphobia issue becomes an issue. But what what's interesting is is that you have that. It only applies to certain women, for example. Mm -hmm. So it applies to girls who might who are, are either groomed or abused, yeah. who are white. White, exactly. Yeah. You know um, what they would consider native to the. The ideal victim. Yeah, which totally. Is, yeah, racial. Yeah, like if anyone saw yeah. that TV show, Three Girls, yeah. 
where it like was a dramatization of Asian grooming gangs in Rochdale, yeah. and they had three white girls, and all the girls who were victims were white. And it's like, well, that's just not the case. Yeah. <laughs> but in the, so what's happened with this sort of so-called alt-right, alt-light, international dark web? You've seen quite quickly how that's all fine. We're going to look after the women. And, and which is the oldest racist trope. I mean, I'm sorry, but it, this is this is Emmett Till. This is Birth of a Nation. Oh this is God. the Klan's rationale for organizing. But what ends up happening is, is they go, you know, we don't like the, the feminists. We don't like the activists. So we we'd like our liberal sort of masculine protection of women and girls, but we'd like it with a heavy dose of misogyny. And, and, and homophobia. Oh, homophobia, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But the, the homophobia thing is also what splits the right, because you have a lot of these organizations who are reductive, positive, eugenicists, family sort of like, we need to, we need to, like, white people need to breed white people, and they're, they're so, they're, they still become normative on sexuality, and so some of them will not even allow for common nationalism. Mm-hmm. And that's quite interesting, and, and maybe that's also an American phenomenon where you have a real split with the Christian right, the new atheists, the libertarians, and the far right coming together. So there's like, they have these big debates about it. Um, and they consider the, the sort of, um, whereas the, the gender issue, they can all, we've all got wives and daughters and mothers. But that's what I mean, and sorry, yeah, I guess that's why I meant when I said homophobia, it's more like, Les- like towards lesbians specifically. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, you're not a good breeder. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, it, and it's interesting because, like, as yeah, it's it's um, and also they have a lot of the spokespeople of these sort of alt light touch dark web um, are men. Yeah. So in fact, actually, that if they can, and and some of them may be gay. Like Milo, Milo, Milo Yiannopoulos. Well, see, that's Milo's because I was thinking of Dave Rubin, but Milo Yiannopoulos was a he affirmed all the myths, fantasies, and discourses of homophobic ones. So in a sense, because of his politics about sexuality, um, that became, or his, his sexual identity, that became a, a, a thing to see, he affirmed our, our homophobia. Well, that's because of like, the Daily Stormer, on that yeah. side, they, yeah. they, they didn't like him at all. No, 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 no. They no, were no, like, no. That. He was like, he's like the worst. Because so who does like him? Why does he have such a big platform? Has he come from money? It's come from money. Yeah. Um, I he exposed. Well, he was the Gamergate guy. So he Uh, was he was key to the emergence of the alt right and the alt alt light by by attracting youth culture against the interference of particularly feminist gamer critics. Yeah. So his his racial politics and his sexual politics were almost were always a problem for the right, and they hung him out to dry on that. With the drive. They, I mean, intentionally. I don't think it was unjust. Well, he's been. He, yeah. He's not. He's not part of it. The main. No, the no. main. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, he, I mean, he's pretty bankrupt now and stuff like this so, because he 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 made some comments. I think if I if I'm remembering correctly, about um, sexual relations with minors. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that became suddenly the liberal media wouldn't touch him. Of course. <laughs> or, or yeah. <laughs> 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 And then the far right goes, see, we always knew about those people. Mm. And that was the, the homophobia was alive. It was okay as long as they, he was fighting the battle against women and political correctness. And, and that's not to say it was unjust what happened. I mean, he was, he was central to the mainstreaming of the far right and the link between libertarians, liberals, 
and the far right. I just think, for me, I look at Europe now, especially in the European context, and I get worried because Europe has a, a bad time with nationalism. Mm -hmm. And when it does reoccur, and the way it's recurring now, I get worried because I don't know. Are we repeating the same mistakes that we repeated not so long ago? History tells us that this doesn't end well. Yeah, the idea that the kind of rivalry between Europeans, and you're, you're seeing stuff like there's arguments between French people and German people, these having these arguments online, and these things you're thinking like these old discourses, man, but you're willing to repeat these same things over and over again. And it worries me because I think immigration won't stop. In fact, it will get more because climate change and all this kind of stuff. So, what do we do? You can't retreat into fortress Europe anymore. I think one of the things history also teaches us is that these periods do end, and then there's a level of like liberal delusion where no structures get changed, <laughs> no institutions get changed, and then this happens again as if there's a crisis. Mm -hmm. I've just been reading kind of in the Bamrus book, and she was talking about how, like, the sort of, like you're saying, this, I mean, sorry, Kamendra, I'm probably going to pause this up. The whole, like, fantasy kind of of, European liberal democracy, like cosmopolitanism, you know, like multicultural society, blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, we're a peaceful society post-1945, like, is basically based on total amnesia about the violence that's going on all around the world on, like, yeah. like instigated by European nations. And then violence then gets attributed to migrants instead. Yeah, totally. And so, I don't know, it's kind of... <laughs> It's, it's quite unnerving reading it because you think, well, there's nothing, there is like, there's nothing to stop Europe not being peaceful. Whatever political structures we have in place that will stop war like happening again, even if it's not in the same form as like a world war, mm -hmm. like this violence is an integral part of how European nations have always run. I always think of it this way, 1945 was the dividing between sort of like extremism and racism and peace, right? Decolonization hadn't been consolidated and the, the, the way we rationalize, we, none of us here, but uh, rationalize or, or excuse Churchill's racism and imperialism is because he defeated those racists and imperialists and we're still having those discussions. So in a way, I think it exposes the kind of, the lie, that lie, um, in, in, in an everyday, now of course that Churchill thing is also caught up in that culture war that is sort of emblematic of the backlash. So it's, um, we're, we're still stuck in that moment with different narratives of what's excusable and what's not, and the, the structures haven't changed. You've been listening to Surviving Society at the BSA. Thank you so much, Aaron. That's brilliant. Um, we'll be back with a few more episodes, so stay tuned.